You are now listening to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. I'm Christian Babcock, the host of the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. And what we do on the podcast is we talk to disruptive companies in the outdoor industry, talk about innovative hunting solutions that are changing the landscape, as well as offer you tips and strategy for more successful hunts. All in all, I just want to help you become a better hunter by providing you with high-quality knowledge and information that you can trust. Stay tuned. This episode of the podcast is going to be targeted at beginner elk hunters. For me, I know I'm going to Colorado this September, and I'm super excited about it. And Steve could not be a better guest to explain every question you have around elk hunting and especially elk calling. This is going to be a great episode. And if you have any aspirations of hunting elk at all, you're going to want to listen to the whole thing. Thank you guys. So this week on the podcast, I'm joined by Steve Chappell. He is a premier Arizona elk hunting guide. Uh, We're super excited to have him on, especially since we're going to Colorado over the counter this September. So Steve, I'm just going to give you a, a few seconds to introduce yourself to the listener and you know tell them what you do yes christian i uh, appreciate you having me on today it's a real honor and i'm definitely glad to be here it's always a great opportunity when i get to talk about elk hunting um, with you and your listeners so i'm excited about that uh, basically i just grew up in hunting um, i was raised by you know a mom and a dad uh, uh, who lived in the country and we have, have a farming background so from the very beginning, my dad and granddad being hunters, it was just natural for me uh, to, you know, to take up hunting. And from a very young age, um, I mean, I was hunting with a BB gun and then progressed to a pellet gun to a 22. I can remember my first big game rifle was a 270. And um, it, my first uh, archery elk kill was in the 90 early 90s and um, I just never looked back and it's 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 a great life and and one that I would never change and have no regrets so that's kind of a, a little about me I'm married um, have a wonderful wife and two daughters and um, I'm very proud that's awesome so at what point uh, and how did this journey look like going from hey I just like hunting elk by myself or with friends and i'm not really going to turn it into a business at what point did you decide to start monetizing something that you really loved yes that christian was in the early 90s and my dad had gotten into guiding a few years prior and i was working with him and so it was just natural that i would help him uh, with that um and i was just I had just been getting my feet in elk calling, getting my feet wet in elk calling a couple of years prior to that. Um, so I was really, you know, all about that. I still am. And, um, yeah, I was in my early to mid twenties at that time. And, uh, from the very beginning, I really enjoyed it. I just think you make very, uh, solid lifelong friends and relationships through it. Um, you know, I'm still definitely a hunter at heart and I hunt Anytime I get the opportunity, I'm, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool archery hunter, so I apply for archery elk hunts only in Arizona. Uh, it's been since 2010 since I've drawn a tag, but I'm, I'm due here pretty soon. But uh, yeah, that's how I got started in it. So you haven't, so when's the last time, or you said that you're an Arizona-only elk hunter now? For the most part, yes. I mean, I apply to other states, but it's just very rare. Um, you know how these draw odds are. It's tough to draw. I drew a Utah tag back in 2007. It was an archery tag, and I took a nice bull. That U- Utah archery hunt, is a, it, it's pretty early, so uh, you struggle a little bit with good bugling and, you know, with it being a good callers type hunt. Um, yeah. But still came away with that hunt with the bull, you know, that knocks 350 gross. So I felt like it was a success. Um, on that very year, 2007, I actually drew a 7 West Arizona tag. So I had two tags in the same year. It was kind of a problem, but a good problem to have. Um, right. Uh, I came away um, from that Arizona hunt with the, the mid 340s bull. Uh, so all in all, it was 
it was a great year and I got to share both of those hunts with some very good friends. So all in all, uh, it was, it was awesome. And, you know, Christian, with that said, I kind of decided a long time ago that when, and if I do draw, I want it to be, you know, best hunts. And aside from that, I would rather guide people on, you know, great hunts that they draw and just experience the hunt vicariously through them. Right. So, so I know Arizona, I got a buddy, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Corey's guide service. Yeah. Um, yeah. So really funny and really small world. Cause I know you and Jay Scott, I think you guys are, you guys know the Corey's well, but, um, yep. I was at school last year and a friend was like, yeah, I used to be an elk hunting guide in Arizona. And I, I had no, <laughs> I had no idea that elk hunting was amazing in Arizona. I was like, Right. Oh, cool. Like the desert. That's really cool. And he's yeah. like, no, no, I'm being serious. Like I was an elk kind of guy. And so he showed me like all these massive bulls and you guys really, really got it going on there. I haven't, I haven't got to start applying to your state, but I really, really want to. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a must apply for state for sure. Um, you know, there is a 10% non-resident cap, but the nice thing about our state is that it's a hybrid draw so um, there's an element of fairness in the draw. So the first 20% of the tags on any hunt go to the highest bonus point holders. But then the remaining 80% of the tags are issued randomly. And as far as the non-resident tags go, half of the non-resident tags are issued to the highest bonus point holders and half are for the random draw. So regardless of a non-resident's point total or if he's applied or not, you always have a chance to draw. Um, matter of fact, a couple of non-residents who are going to be hunting with us this year, very first time applying in the Arizona draw, and they drew phenomenal archery elk tags. So that's that's the great thing about Arizona. Now that's, that's really awesome. So one thing that I really wanted to, to get into was um, – I really just looking at this from a really basic standpoint of what does someone need to know to go hunt over the counter in, in a state like Colorado? I'm just using that as an example because I know most of the people that are going to be listening to this podcast are probably going to be looking at a state like that. And so yes. from I know I want to talk to you starting out um, from bare bones, I don't know anything, and walking through all the way through calling. And I think that'd be a good strategy of just giving someone a holistic view of, you know, and giving them a good opportunity to take an elk home this year. Yes. So um, the, go ahead, Christian. Yep. Oh, no, no, I was just saying, how do you, how do you start your hunts? If you're going to go, if you know you're going to go on a hunt to Utah this year, it's an area that you've never been before. Where do you start and what does that look like? Yes, I would say definitely the, my first go-to strategy is going to be to reach out to anyone and everyone that I know that might have knowledge of that unit. Like when I had, it was the boulder that I had. I'm not afraid to say that, the, uh, the boulder unit. And I did know a couple of guys from Utah. And so I reached out to them and ultimately I did get some very good information from them. Um, I think in, in this day, a day and age of the internet, and chat forums and such. I think um, that there's valuable information to be had, you know, by reaching out to people uh, on forums. I think you have to be a little careful sometimes with that, um, but that would be the first thing that I would do. Um, I would definitely, um, I always, uh, like when I had that hunt, I purchased um, the forest map, and then I also purchased, you know, the topographical maps of the unit, um, just to give me a, an overview of the road systems and all of that and the water sources. Also to get an idea of, the, you know, what kind of elevations I'd be looking at. Um, just being in good physical condition cannot be overstated. <laughs> your ability to enjoy a hunt to the fullest. Um, right. You know, aside from that, I, I know, um, you know, like uh, uh, Go Hunt is a great resource as well. There's just so many things out there. It can almost be overwhelming. Google Earth. Um I, I love that resource as well, being able to, you know, look at things from above and, and get a bird's eye view of how the topography and everything looks. Um, so that's a valuable resource. Um, you know, and then aside from that, again, it's going to come down to preparing physically to, to where, you know, you're in good hiking condition. Um, I really feel like a lot of times calling can be um, minimized and not enough importance placed on it. 
um, in this age of physical fitness and, you know, eating and keto dieting and all of that. I think sometimes there's more emphasis placed on that than perfecting the craft of calling. And I'm telling you, Christian, um, over the years, I, I just can't tell you how much of a difference calling uh, makes in hunting, especially in archery hunting. Um, you know, when you can set up and call a bull in on your terms uh, and have him come in duped, it just, it makes so much difference in the success and the enjoyment of the hunt. Um, so I'd really encourage uh, guys and gals out there to, um, you know, spend the time. Um, you know, I won't say that, I'll be honest and won't say that nowadays that I practice 300 days out of the year, I should, um, because my goal as a caller is to always get better and learn something new and perfect the sound uh, every year. Um, but, you know, in the past, uh, to get to where I'm at now, I probably did um, 300 days out of the year. I would blow a call for several minutes a day. And I had the opportunity with my farming background to actually practice a lot and try different things and figure out different sounds. And um, yeah, it's just amazing um, what calling can do for you. And I just can't overstate the importance of it. Yeah. So realistically, what do you think someone who is maybe from a Midwestern state, an Eastern state, somewhere just not around that Western style of hunting, yeah. uh, what, what do you think realistically are a couple uh, variations of a call or what calls they need to hone in on? And just, I know a lot of people are going to try to be good at everything, right? I don't, yeah. I know that I'm not going to walk out and I'm going to be the best at a diaphragm cow call, at an open read cow call, at bugling, you know, at chuckling, all those things. I, it's, and it, I, I look at it in a perspective of turkey hunting as well. Like I'm not going to be the best turkey caller, but I can get really good at a couple things, Yes. you know? So what do you, what are those tools or what are the, the best calls that you would tell someone to master, um, if they just had a little bit of time to prepare before they went out? On their first Absolutely. Time. That's a great question. I would say without hesitation that a guy to start off with, if he hasn't blown all the elk calls out there and is new into it, would be to get a hold of a couple of good open read cow calls and learn those. And what I would um, tell them to do is watch instructional YouTube videos to start out with so they get just a kind of an overview of how to blow the call and a general idea on how it should sound and then springboard off of that and start watching um, real elk live elk and you can also type in you know to YouTube live elk sounds you know live elk calling and then hone your ear into that into the, the elk tonal quality and the cadence and you know, the frequency of their calling. And again, starting out with that open read call and, and mastering that first and not trying to, you know, master everything at once, you know, like a, a mouth read bugling and all of that and go from there. I would say overall, Christian, that I've called in easily if 80% or more of my bulls have been with an open read call over the years. That's awesome. Yeah. So, I mean... One thing that I think about, and the only animal that I've got to interact with as far as a call goes, is a turkey. And I know I'm not even going to try to make the cliche comparison that a turkey is an elk and an elk's a turkey, because I know it's not. <laughs> but I do think any animal that responds to a call can be somewhat similar in some ways. And one of the ways that I was, I'm curious about is on a turkey, if you've got a turkey, if he's quiet, you know, if he's, if he's fired up, regardless, you can get, when he, as he gets closer, you get real, real soft with it yeah. and they get more and more inquisitive of like, where is that coming from? Yeah. You know, it's, it's just really hard to pinpoint that down. Um, and so have you had experiences like that in the elk woods before? And what does that look like? Yeah, that's perfect. What you just said there, Christian, it, it definitely relates to elk calling. Um, I mention this every time when I talk in a seminar that the closer an elk gets, the more subtle and soft you want to be because I think as they get closer, obviously they can hear that sound better. And if you're blowing it loud and harsh, it tends to set them on edge a little bit. Whereas if you're blowing it softer and more subtly and maybe, you know, throwing the sound behind you or off to the side, it confuses them just a little bit about how far the sound is away. And that's what you want. You don't, their depth perception is so good you don't want them to be able to pinpoint exactly where you're at, especially if you're calling for yourself 
and trying to call the bull in a setup. So yes, I do as the bull approaches, that's my goal is to just get softer and more subtle on the call. So as you're practicing on a call, whether it be an open read call or a mouth read, that's something very important that you mentioned to include in your practice, you know, adjusting the volume and toning it down and perfecting that as well. Now, what what types, I know there's different noises you can make. What are the noises that a beginner should should focus on? I know there's several noises you can make even within an open read call. So, yes. yeah, what are the ones that you think are maybe easiest to get good at quickly or is that they should focus on? Yeah, Christian, I think just the what I would refer to as just a standard mew, just a contact mew, just that basic sound that you hear when elk are together and everything's okay and they're just calling back and forth. So it's just kind of that nice sliding two note sound that you hear that kind of goes from a, you know, what I call kind of a medium tone and then slides down from there. And do you think that one thing I'm, I'm trying to get a gauge on as I get closer and closer to going to Colorado is what they're going to be doing this time of the year. So I'm going to be getting there on September 1st uh -huh. and leaving on the 7th or the 8th. Uh -huh. So I'm wondering how big of a factor maybe calling will be in that time frame and what the pattern is going to look like there. Yes. Um, that's just a little bit early. That's going to be pre-rut time. But a lot of times that can be a very good time, especially to call in a bigger bull that hasn't gotten cowed up because at that time of the year, it, it can be a little hit and miss on if a bull's ready or not to respond to a call. Um, but I always say I'm hunting for that one bull that's ready to play the game. And it seems like there's always that bull out there. It's just a matter of finding him. So um, basically during that time of year, um, you know, I would be prospecting with, with cow calling and then, you know, even calling loudly on the cow call to locate, to, to get one to bugle. Um, and then also using uh, my bugling sounds as well, because it's kind of interesting. Sometimes a bull may not, you know, be ready to deal with cows for whatever reason. Some bulls are, their temperaments are all different. They, they just, everyone seems to be an individual, just like a person or a turkey or anything else. Um, so it's just a matter of finding what that animal wants to hear and trying some different sounds until you, you can trigger that response. Um, but again, I don't want to make it rocket science and, and, you know, and go back and say that I've just called in so many bulls over the years, just using just a nice, sexy, standard cow call. And one thing that I, I like, I'm, I've been curious about is frequency of calling. Cause I know when you're turkey hunting, you can, you can walk, you know, 200 yards, you can hit the call. You can walk another 200 yards, you can hit the call. What is their, what, how good at hearing are they? And, and how frequently would you be doing that if you're just running, gunning, and just trying to locate some bulls? Yeah, their, their hearing is very good. They can definitely hear a lot better than we can. So when I'm out there, a lot of it depends on the terrain and the vegetation in, in, in how often I'm going to call. But anytime I just kind of use my instincts and anytime I would break into say like a new basin or over a ridge line or anything like that, I'm going to call again. Uh, I would say in general, I would probably be calling um, if there's not bugling going on. I'm probably going to be calling for the most part anywhere from a quarter to a half a mile apart, just again, depending on, you know, the thickness and the terrain. Mm -hmm. um, I think. People can be too aggressive by bugling, let's say, every time their left foot hits the ground. There's those <laughs> type of callers. And then there's people who are too passive. And, and I think the, the, the perfect mix is, you know, just being right there in the middle. Mm -hmm. One thing that I've seen uh, or I've read and, and saw on videos and actually heard from people that I've had on the podcast before is that with elk, they sometimes, when they come from a Midwest style, they tend to play things a little passive yes. and you know, they don't want to make, you know, big moves. Like we just got to go in, we got to go for it. I don't care if we get busted. We just got to do it. Cause I know as a deer hunter first, that's kind of what I've grown up on. I am extremely passive. Like I, I'm like, okay, I can come in here and get that, that deer tomorrow. Like I'm not going to bump him. I'm not going to risk this and that. But I, I sense my intuition tells me that you have to be a little bit more risky in elk hunting. And, and what, what is your, what's your experience with that? 
You're exactly right, Christian. I don't like to be risky and aggressive with the wind. I like to make sure that I play the wind right and I don't get winded by elk because unlike a deer, they can blow out of the country and be, you know, several miles away if you really blow them out and you can change their pattern. But as far as calling, uh, yes, I, I, I think people can very easily be too passive. And another thing about calling is your distance from, from the bull. I found uh, in my experience when I'm out there in the woods and I encounter hunters, I would say on the average, most people are trying to call elk in from too far away. Uh, you know, they're set up with an arrow knocked, all ready to go in the shade of a tree, and the bull's bugling a half a mile away. Well, my take on that is they need to be 10 times closer than that for their calling to be meaningful to most bulls. Um, you know, sure, occasionally you can call in a two-and-a-half-year-old bull from a half a mile away because they're <laughs> eager for company. But those ma more mature bulls, they're doing things with a purpose, and especially a bull, a bull with cows. Um, you know, he's all about those cows. He's all about protecting and being with those cows. So to get those herd bulls and those more mature bulls, you're going to need to be inside of that zone, you know, easily 150, 120, 100 yards. Um, it, it, I say as close as you can get without blowing them out. And then your calling and your chances are more meaningful and, and your chance of killing that bull go way up from there. Um, so, you know, my advice there would be, uh, to get just dangerously close, as close as you can without spooking them. Do you think that invokes more of a, a, a genuinely surprised reaction from the bull? Because when you're way far out, he's like, ah, okay, and now she's a little closer, and now she's a little closer, and now she's really close, and I don't see her, right? Yeah. Whereas yeah. if you're just right in on him, and you're just like, you just hit that call, he's like, whoa, whoa, you know, where was that? I haven't heard that before. Yeah. You know, is it, does that kind of spark that reaction in him? That's a good question. And with that said, I'm always, especially if I'm cow calling, I'm careful about introducing myself in a loud, harsh way. So let's mm -hmm. say, just like you said, I've moved in and I'm now 100 yards from that bull. And maybe he hasn't heard me call since I was a half mile away and I located him with a call. And now I'm 100 yards away. I, I In my experience, I found that I want to be subtle and easy with him when I get in that zone to introduce myself to him because it can really set him off if I blow a, a loud, harsh call at that point. So I'm just going to try to be smooth and easy. And, you know, I say baby talk to him to start the conversation off. And then I can warm him up a little as he answers. And basically what my uh, cadence is with these calls is, is, is when the bull bugles to me, I'm going to give him just enough time to get his bugle out, to cock his ears, to listen in my direction. And then I'm just going to give him, you know, one to two to three calls. I'm not going to be too passive, but I'm not going to overdo it either. I'm just going to give him again, you know, one to three calls back, wait for him to bugle again. And then I'm going to reassure him again that he's doing the right thing, that coming and visiting me is what he wants to do. And that just seems to produce results year in and year out. So what's your experience with maybe setting the caller 50 or 60 yards behind someone that has a bow and arrow? That's absolutely deadly and, and the absolute best way to do it. Because I found that as long as a bull can't see the caller's location. So as a caller, my goal is to be in a position where that bull has to continue to come looking for me in that calling position. And in doing so, He's going to pass by the shooter, not even knowing that the shooter's even in the world because the shooter ideally is not calling. And that, and I, what I'm trying to do is draw that bull broadside and to the upwind side of my hunter. And, you know, my distance back is kind of vary depending on how thick the vegetation is. Um, so I can be anywhere from, like you said, 50 or 60 yards all the way to maybe 100 yards or more if I'm in pine country. Um, yeah. that is absolutely the most efficient way to get it done and to give the hunter those broadside opportunities. Yeah. I, I saw that play out with me <laughs> in several mistakes this year while I was in Mississippi turkey hunting. Uh -huh. We sat, we sat the decoy at our feet 20 yards out and had five, like four or five toms just blown up six yards from the decoy behind these set of trees. And we're like, if we would have put the, put the decoy 10 yards past us we would have got 
<laughs> we would have killed three or four of them, you know. Uh, and right. <laughs> so I just I don't want to make that same mistake in the elk woods because I I just it, it's I just feel like animals they tend to hang up further out than you think. Like turkeys, yeah. like sixty or seventy yards, always yeah. hang up out there, and they're and a lot of times they're giving you a show, you know, gobbling their head off. I assume with yep. elk, you know, bugling. Like same I way. see a lot of a lot of videos out there where people don't get shots and they they got a bull, a bull bugling his head off at 70 yards. So yeah, yes. I would really like to avoid that. <laughs> That's absolutely right. So yeah, if you're hunting with a buddy, you're always better off instead of going two different directions and each of you hunting solo is just, you know, deciding and however you decide who's going to be the caller and who's going to be the shooter on that particular hunt. And you're going to be way more efficient. And like you say, when you do have encounters with with bulls, there's going to be a better chance that whoever the shooter is, that he's going to be able to kill that elk because of distance and the fact that the elk's not going to hang up out there. So in this early, I guess, pre-rut stage um, that we're talking about, where do you think, um, maybe from an e-scouting perspective or um, I just set boots on the ground as soon as I get there, where is going to be the core areas that you're going to start to look at? Yeah, definitely going to look at, you know, predominantly north-facing slopes um, and areas where there's benches where you're going to be able to find water and wallows because that time of year these bulls are going to be, you know, feeling the rut coming on. They're going to be, you know, needing water, needing to wallow. Um, So that's going to be, you know, something I'm really looking for. I'm going to be looking for areas also where they can feed, um, you know, aspen areas, if you're in the higher mountains, are great areas. Uh, they, they love aspen and they love the grasses that grow in those areas. Obviously, in your bedding areas, your spruce areas and your, your north-facing slopes, that's going to be more of bedding and cover type areas. Um, whereas, you know, the aspens and the meadows that you're going to see that are adjacent to that is going to be where they feed and, and water and do their rutting. Do you think... Um waiting along a water hole it's obviously not what i would want to do but do you think that could be an effective tactic this time of year or that time of year oh very much so definitely um and i would say that if you're struggling with um you know getting them to respond to calls and struggling to get them to bugle um that's a very good tactic to set up on water or wallows um and I found that elk can hit those, you know, mornings or evenings. Um, if they're very close and adjacent to, to bedding areas, they can hit them, you know, any time of the day. Uh, in Arizona where we hunt, you know, it's definitely more of an early morning, late evening, nighttime type activity. Because generally they get to, when they bed, they get quite a ways away from the water sources. Um, just by nature, I think they they know that that's a source of danger and you know, so they can get two, three miles away from the water. But, you know, in the higher mountains, uh, you know, those wallows and, 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 and ponds, if they're close and adjacent to bedding areas, can really produce. So does that strategy look like um, really playing it more like a Midwestern style? Like I'm going to be really patient. I'm going to uh, build a blind. I'm going to make sure I'm hidden. Is that just playing the long game or is that just finding fresh tracks and moving? Oh, absolutely. Um, definitely, you know, when you get there and you're scouting, if you find a water source, obviously you're going to want to see if there's, you know, sign there, a sign of wallowing, uh, you know, fresh tracks, uh, you know, maybe rubs nearby that are, that are fresh. That will definitely uh, make that a more priority of an area. Um, I try, I don't sit water a lot because I'm a caller by nature, but one thing I would tell you know, most people in general, I would say if you're going to sit water, you're better off just letting nature be nature, so to speak, and, you know, not blowing calls when you're there. Because I feel like those elk have lived there. Uh, they know what's normal. They know what's not normal. And if all of a sudden you introduce something into that environment that they're not used to, um, that can, you know, set them off or spell danger for them. So um, I, I would say as tempting as it is, I would definitely start off by trying to, you know, again, just, just let nature play out and, and let those elk naturally come into that, to that water source and uh, get it done that way. How big of a factor would you 
consider scent control to be? I'm, I'm definitely particular about it. I wouldn't say that I'm a fanatic about it. And the main reason for that, Christian, is with me being a guide, I'm hunting with a client. So there's two of us there. And then plus I have a cameraman. So there's three of us. So I feel like I can never overcome the wind and I have to just be absolutely all about hunting the wind right. Uh, I would say, though, if you're hunting solo, um, I would say be fanatical about it. Um, I, I know guys who, you know, if they're on a two week hunt, they will have 14 pieces of everything, 14, you know, socks, underwear, short sleeve shirt, long sleeve shirt, pants and so on. And I can tell you this, I've been in scenarios where I'm the only one there and I'm scouting and I've had a wind checker with me and I have taken a descenting shower. I have fresh clothes on that were laundered in, in descenting soap and then isolated from all other smells. I've, I've had elk get downwind of me with a wind checker and, and I've had them seemingly not pick up on it at all. And another thing that I've used over the years is, is elk urine. Now I know in some states like in Arizona, you can't use real elk urine, but there's synthetic elk urine available now. And that has been incredibly effective for me as well, especially the type that you can spray into the air. Now, is that just using that as a cover scent? Like I know from, from my, um, ex my experiences, I would use that more as like a rutting behavior, like maybe tie a sock soaked in it on your boot and maybe have yeah. something fall up behind you, but you're using that purely as a cover scent. I'm, I'm basically misting it into the air and I'm spraying, spraying it on the foliage, especially on the downwind side of me, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'll be the first to admit, I don't really like having elk urine on me um, because I like being able to smell elk when I get around them. Um, plus, it's a pretty obnoxious, offensive odor <laughs> to your buddies. <laughs> if, if you get in the truck and you've got that smell on you, you quickly become not such a great friend. <laughs> but... Yeah, when I use it, Christian, it's mostly, like I say, I spray it on the foliage immediately around me, and then I, 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 you know, puff it into the air, especially if I know elk are approaching, and it's it's incredible how effective it is. That's that's really interesting. I, I, that's something that I had not um, really considered in the past. I And I've got mixed opinions and mixed signals from people. I've heard from some people, you know, oh, can't smell very good at all. You know, they can't, uh, they're about like a turkey. And then I've heard, yeah, elk <laughs> can smell really good. And I'm like, okay, so that's good. That's affirming to hear that they definitely do have a good nose and you want to play the wind in the right way. Absolutely. I would compare their, their smell, sense of smell to a hound dog. It's phenomenal. Mm. What a times better than ours. And I would say with what I just said about elk urine, I would also say, you know, I believe that an elk could still smell human scent amongst that. So if, if you're rank and you smell like a locker room and they're downwind of you and you're puffing, you know, you're pumping elk urine into the air, they're still, you're going to smell like a skunk in a rose garden. They're still going to smell you. So, you know, having that personal, um, you know, descenting and, uh, you know, making sure that your scent is as minimized as possible is still very important and don't just use the elk urine and be sloppy with your own personal scent control. <laughs> right. Now that's something that I'm definitely going to have to do a good job of is playing, playing the wind. And it's going to be really tempting because I, I know a lot of times you're giving up opportunities because the wind isn't right. Yep. Yep. And, uh, that's, uh, it's going to be worth it though. What would you, what would your comment be on, or what would you compare the eyesight of an elk to be, um, what other animal would you compare that to? That's one thing, Christian, I'm glad you asked that, that you can overcome and, and you can fool is their sense of sight. Um, scientists have said that an elk's vision um, is comparable to 2060 vision, like a human with 2060 vision. Mm. So their visual acuity is not extremely sharp. And I found that that they're hearing you can you can fool you can fool uh their sight but you can't fool their nose very easily um the way i found this out is um over the years hunting them 
you know, as darkness starts to progress into that gray light of morning, I've noticed that as long as I can't see them with my naked eye, if I'm having to use my binoculars to see them, they don't pick up on me. But the minute that I can start, you know, making them out with my naked eye, if I'm moving or, you know, making a move on them, that's when they're going to start picking me out. Um, but I think people, again, can be too passive and not make, you know, aggressive moves on elk in that gray, gray light of morning when you could be make, making a move and getting closer. So I think that's one thing that people definitely overestimate is their, is their vision. And that, what are they doing that you're tracking in those early wee mornings or wee hours of the morning or maybe late at night, like you were saying, that gray foggy time? What, what are you, how are you finding them then? Are they bugling in the morning? Are they, are they cow calling in the morning? What's that like? Yeah. Um, generally, right as they're getting ready to move from their feeding and watering area to bed, that's when they're going to start calling because they want to, you know, stay together. If there's a bull there, he wants to, you know, make sure the cows stay with him. So in general, that's when they're going to start bugling. Prior to that, in the darkness, they can kind of get real quiet and you start wondering, you know, what's going on. And, and then as they start moving, they're also going to be bugling then as well and cow calling. Um, so that's the time when I, you know, place high priority on being close to them and, you know, getting in there and setting up and, and, and trying to call them in is during, you know, those first few minutes of light. Uh, I feel like that's when they're, you know, the most vulnerable right then. Um, I've noticed over the years that our Arizona elk, this is kind of an interesting phenomenon, and I'm sure uh, any of your listeners out there who've hunted Arizona, I've noticed a phenomenon that I call the gray light shutdown. <laughs> and <laughs> these elk can be bugling in the darkness and then they can be bugling in that real gray light and then right as it starts breaking that first light you know that first good light they will shut up and they will go for like a mile without making a peep and you're just like what in the world happened and that's without putting any pressure on them without blowing any calls at them um, i almost think it's just a almost they've been conditioned to do that uh, by pressure in certain areas. So what I do in that situation, it's a little bit of a guessing game, but the best thing that you can do is check the wind and keep track of the wind and push into the wind and just, you know, do your best to keep pace with, with them or what you think their pace is. And then it seems like after, I don't know, you know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, uh, they'll, they'll fire back up once they get out of that, you know, zone close to the roads and, and such. That's, that's some good information to know. But, yeah. It's a real phenomenon that I've noticed. So um, just, you know, be aware of that as, as you hunt. So what, what do you think it would look like if, so if you're, if you're carrying a pack and you're really packing your camp up with you every day, cause you don't know the area very well. Uh -huh. Um, what is it like if you get them bedded, if you've, you've located a bedding area late at night, you watch them bed down, what, what would you do that next morning? Are you going to expect them to be in that same spot or, or how would that work? Yeah, generally if you, you know, put them to bed, so to speak, and generally that's going to be in a, a feeding slash watering area, you're correct. They're going to be there. They're going to be very close or exactly where you left them you know, barring them being spooked in the night by something. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I, I would say you can count on them being right there where you left them. Um, you know, my, my advice there would be to definitely check the wind, get the wind right, make your approach uh, from the downwind side and, uh, you know, try to get as close and tight to them as you can before that first light breaks. And then you can, you know, work with them with the calls and, you know, I, th I think I should also say a lot of times elk can be killed without calling. There's some bulls that are that are hard to kill with calling, especially if they've had been pressured, been called out. And, and many times when they have cows, the cows will pull the bull away as much as anything. You can have a cow that will just not have anything to do with outside calling and will pull the bull away. So there, there's some there's a time for calling and there's a time for crawling, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> that's a that's a really funny slogan. I hope you <laughs> trademarked that. <laughs> uh, so, how much are you expecting to move during a day if you had absolutely no information about where you're going besides e-scouting it? Yeah, I would say if a guy is physical enough, I you know, there's some guys who could probably, depending on how rough the country is, you know, could easily cover you know, eight to 10 miles. But if the country's really rough, it could be like, you know, more like two to four miles. I would just say as a rule, if I'm not getting bugling, again, I'm hunting for that bull that wants to play the game and I'm out there panhandling with my calls. I'm going to cover as much country as I can, um, you know, blowing my calls, trying to, you know, solicit for a bugle. Um, so, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to flat wear my boots out um, looking for that bull that wants to bugle. So it elk hunting definitely is a, a very physical, physical hunt compared to a lot of others. And how do you prepare throughout the summer leading up to August and September? Physically? Yeah. yeah um, you know, I, I'm not going to say that I lift weights as heavily as I did in the past when I was younger, just because, you know, I feel like my body can't handle that. Um, you know, I'm not maxing out on lifts, but I'm doing more, um, you know, bodybuilding type exercises and not focusing so much on the weight, but on the feel of the exercise and on repetition to where I just get that good burn and that, that good pump. And then I, I think that's important to strengthen your muscles, especially, uh, when you kill an elk and you've, you've got that, uh, <laughs> that pack out in front of you. Um, so very important not to just be in cardiovascular shape, but to, you know, have your muscles strengthened to be able to handle those loads. Um, you know, and then I'm, I'm, I'm just walking briskly and hiking, uh, during the spring and summer. Um, again, mainly focusing on, uh, you know, not overdoing it to where I'm, I'm hurting myself and placing strain on my knees and Achilles tendons and things like that. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, you know, very important for a guy to just, uh, you know, stay tuned up as, as, as you can, because it makes all the difference in, in, in the enjoyment of the hunt, if nothing else. One thing that I was thinking about too, and I talked to a guy in my podcast recently about is being able and practicing your calls when you're out of breath. <laughs> Do you <laughs> amen to that? <laughs> yeah. Cause that's something I had never considered because I mean, <laughs> And that's something I'd heard. I talked to this author that had hunted all around North America, and he was like, you know, you need to practice shooting your bow in those situations, and I guess practice calling in the same way because you're going to be anything but super calm and have a uh, you know controlled breath when a breaths when a uh, bull is bugling your face off. You know, I totally agree with that. That is a great point. Whoever mentioned that knows what they're talking about. <laughs> Because you're exactly right. It's so different when you're in the comfort of your home or in your truck and you're just sitting there and you're relaxed and your pulse is not up and your excitement level is not up. So I do try, just like when I was in young and playing baseball or basketball, I try to mentally put myself in the position um, of being out there in the woods, being in front of an elk. And when I practice, try to make that first call come out well and sound right. And then again, like you say, um, definitely, uh, you know, when you're exercising and hiking, it just makes so much difference, um, you know, in your ability to call at that point when you're out of breath. What I always try to do when I get out of breath and I'm in the elk woods, I try to take just a few seconds to kind of gather myself emotionally and uh, just put myself in that calm state of mind and then take some deep breaths and try to, you know, slow my breathing down a little bit. Uh, to where that call comes out and it's, it's more, you know, natural and authentic. That's a great point that you bring up. What would you, uh, what would you recommend to someone as far as building an arrow for elk hunting? Are you shooting a, I know I shoot a 500 grain arrow, including the head with a hundred grain fixed broadhead. What would, yeah. what would your ideal um, elk arrow and broadhead combo look like? Yeah, I would say first thing I'll say as a disclaimer, I'm not, I, I, you know, I'm all about calling and that's kind of my specialty. I know there's guys out there who are more techie and are going to know more about this than, than I do, but I would agree with you in that 
I think, uh, you know, being a little on the heavier side with arrows um, is a good idea. Um, I've hunted with hunters recently who've used like the full metal jackets. Um, I definitely think those are a great arrow because penetration is king with elk. Um, I believe, like you said, in, in, a, in a fixed blade cut on contact broadhead, uh, you know, in that 100 to 125 range, just depending on your arrow. Um, I have seen a lot of hunters kill elk quickly uh, with like the G5 Montex, uh, the G5 Striker, the Wackums, uh, you know, even Muzzies at times. Uh, and I'm sure I'm failing to mention quite a few, but just any good cut on contact broadhead that's going to fly well out of your setup is going to serve you well. I think expandables have their have their purpose but i don't really feel like they're optimum for for elk hunting um mainly just because elk are such a thick skinned big boned animal uh if your angle is not just right you're not going to get the penetration out of those that you would out of a cut on contact fixed blade that's just my experience what for someone that's beginning what do you think would be what's the likelihood of getting a shot on an, on a bull within 50 yards? Would you think? I think if they obey the wind, they get close to that animal and they've practiced enough on their calls and can control their emotions enough to where they can blow that call in a nice controlled manner. It's highly realistic. <laughs> I go back to my very first archery kill and I was almost, well, I was amazed, Christian. I remember thinking out loud to myself, wow, that was easy. Why didn't <laughs> I do this a long time ago? Well, I found out it's not always easy. Elk hunting every year, I'm reminded, is not easy. But that particular time on that archery hunt, that was the very first time I had gone to the elk woods with a bow. I'd hunted mule deer and other things in the past. Um but basically, I just I just did things right on that morning. I had the wind right. Um, I blew. I cow called. A bull bugled up on the mountain. Uh, you know, probably four or five hundred yards up the mountain from me. I cut the distance down substantially to where I was probably 150 yards away. Uh, picked a good setup. Cow called behind me, so the bull was a little confused at my location, and he just came storming in. And I shot him at about 30 yards, and he fell down right in front of me. That's an incredible story. So that, that was my first. Yeah. So I would say, um, you know, believe in yourself. If you're a new hunter, have confidence um, that, that you can do it um, just as much as someone who's done it for 30 years. Um, if you do those things right, if you if you get the wind right, if you if you get close, if you control those calls, um, you know, and you, and you pick a good setup. Hey, bingo, it can happen for you. Do you think that... Um... Do you think that elk uh, tend to, I see, I don't know, I've seen some marginal shots on elk that still take, that still, they end up harvesting the animal. Do yeah. you think that elk, um, the cliche of the bigger they are, the harder they fall, do you think that has to do, or do you think that applies to elk in a way? Yeah, I, I do in general. Um I haven't been so lucky over the years. It seems to me like if me or my hunter doesn't make an absolute slammer shot, it just turn our nightmare starts right then. If we just make a good shot or a marginal shot, that it turns into a nightmare because I've said very recently that if you hit a bull with a perfect double lung shot, he dies fast and easily. He's a, he's a lamb. But if you just make an okay shot, all of a sudden he's a Tyrannosaurus Rex <laughs> and he just has just this resiliency that is just freakish. And he just wants to go as far away and die in the worst, nastiest place that you're never going to find him. It just seems like that's their goal. And so with that, I would say, you know, when you're at full draw on an elk and you've got your pin on him, your appropriate pin, and you think I've in your mind, you think I've got him. You don't necessarily have him yet. <laughs> Take that extra second to really focus on that fine spot. You know, that spot that's these broadside, you know, four to five inches behind that shoulder. My tendency has been, and my mistake has been to crowd the shoulder. And 
that is not a good shot when you get into that shoulder. So that sweet spot, you know, four to five inches behind the shoulder, you know, somewhere between a third of the way up the body and halfway up the body. And then just take that, you know, extra instant to make sure that you're, you know, squeezing that release and letting it go off naturally to where you're hitting right where you want to hit. Um, yeah, in that instance, you'll be amazed at how fast that bull will go down if he's double lunged. Um, you know, if he's single lunged or stomach shot or, you know, it can just <laughs> turn into the epic recovery, if you know what I mean. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm, I'm all too familiar with that scenario that you're describing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What's been one of your, if you had to pick a singular moment in your elk hunting career that would define it or that you, if you only got to choose one memory, which one would it be in the elk woods? Oh, well, I would definitely go back to that call in and first archery elk kill that I just described. That one hooked me for life. Um, and it, yeah, and another one that I would say was my very first time that I called an elk in for a hunter, um, which was back in the early 90s. I was hunting, hunting with a gentleman from Alaska, and we got on a big herd of elk, and you know, there was a bull bugling really aggressively. And, you know, I didn't really feel like I knew calling that well at the time. So basically I was just cow calling. And when the bull would bugle, I would do my best rendition of screaming back and challenging him. And man, he just came firing in a super aggressive Christian. He, next thing I know, he's standing 30 to 40 yards in front of me and the hunter. And my hunter uh, was wearing glasses and they fogged up to the point that he could not see the bull through his scope. So I notice him taking his glasses off and he sets his glasses down on the ground and I'm just cow calling and the bull is still standing there and he shoots and the bull whirls away and just takes off seemingly unhit. And um, the bull was actually just, he was pretty head on, but slightly quartering with his rump a little bit to the right. And the hunter asked me, he said, now was the bull's uh, body and rump to the right or to the left. I said it was to the right. And he said, Oh, I missed him. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yeah. So like at 30, 40 yards. Um, but you know, nonetheless, again, um, just hooked me on, uh, uh, on calling and just seeing, you know, the, the dramatic results that it, that it can produce. One thing I wanted to ask you is, or I can't remember, I can't put my finger on it. Were you involved in making the voodoo call? No. Okay, no. no. Which calls which calls would you recommend to someone that's a beginner? Well, I'll again I'll give a little disclaimer and uh, I'm I'm a little biased here. I would I would definitely recommend that, that they uh take a look at mine and try mine out cuz one thing without apology that I would say, I think God gives us something. Every individual has a gift of some sort or another and I feel like God blessed me with the ability to recognize elk tone and to replicate that in a call and to know what aspects in a call produce good elk tone. So I've got two open read calls. Um, one is the matriarch. One is the trophy wife. Um, it, another thing I would say is it doesn't matter what a call is named. It doesn't matter how fancy the packaging is. It doesn't necessarily matter whether it's a year old, five, 10 years old. It's how does it sound and do elk respond to it? Um, those two open reads have just produced amazing results for me over the years. Um, and, and then aside from that, I've got three mouth reads. Um, uh, one is the elk camp. One is the Royal point. One is the times up again. Those are, I know they're catchy names. Uh, but again, the key is how do they sound? Um, you know, for cow calling, I like a, a read that's got, kind of a robust three-dimensional quality about it. And then for bugling, I like reeds where you can hit that real high pitch that rings your own ears when you blow the call, but yet at the same time has that three-dimensional quality about it. Um, and then to add to that when you're bugling, um, picking out a good tube makes a lot of difference as well. Um, I have a brand new tube that I worked with with Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls on it. Um, very happy with it. It's called the Rogue. Um, Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls has some great, great elk calls, period. 
Um, you know, they've got several uh, uh, bugle tubes that are phenomenal. But I would uh, tell someone if they're looking for a combination of a, of a tube that's got great packability and then also has big, robust sound, um, definitely look at that Rogue. It's a, it's a great sounding tube. So do you think, what, what is the purpose um, of a diaphragm? I know that the diaphragm calls, most people use them in a sense of like, if I'm already drawn back on something, I can, already, I can go ahead and still call. Yes. But do you think that someone that's just starting out should try to work on the open read and the diaphragm so they can bugle as well or just the open read? I would say if you absolutely just struggle with a mouth read, don't let that be a stumbling block for you. You know, just look to, to master the open read. Um, I know there's just some people that they can't get past that gag reflex. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's been overcome a lot by these, you know, newer uh, palette plate style calls. Um, they just by design help people with that gag reflex. I would also say when you put that read in your mouth, experiment with different positions. Uh, many people will put that read up in the top center of their mouth and it will just immediately activate that gag reflex if you have that problem, try moving that reed more forward in your mouth, and it tends to, you know, eliminate that, that gagging problem. Um, oh, you know, mouth reeds definitely do have their place uh, because I feel like you can get those, um, you know, those higher tones that you hear elk make, um, whether it be cow calling or bugling. Um, you know, it definitely gives you a different sound from a mouth reed. And sometimes it's amazing, just like in turkey hunting or fishing, um, what an elk may bite on one day versus another day. So, you know, the more uh, calls you can you can master, the more, you know, versatile and successful you're going to be out there. Um, but again, in the beginning, uh, you know, don't get dejected if you're not able to master a mouth read right away. I think, Christian, it, I think it took me two weeks just to get a sound out of a mouth read when I first started. <laughs> so I was a slow learner. <laughs> right. And you can use, for people that are listening that don't know and want to spend their money in a very uh, wise way, you can use a diaphragm or a mouth read call for bugling and cow calling, correct? That's correct. That's exactly right. Now, most of them are going to have, um, you know, more of a specialty just by design, the thickness of the latex, the stretch. Some of them are going to lend themselves better to bugling sounds, some more to cow sounds. There are some that you can do both on, um, you know, but I, I would say in general, I have reads that I like better for cow calling and then reads I like better for bugling for sure. Yeah. And, and that makes that makes perfect sense. Yes. Just curious. So just uh, just wrapping up here, something I really like to ask people um, to get a really unique perspective from everyone that comes on the podcast is why why do you continue to hunt? I know it's something that you grew up with. Um, it's in, typically most people that do or did grow up in it. But why do you continue to do that? What's the drive? You know, what still interests you about it? I think for me, Christian, it's because I'm hooked on the calling game, the calling aspect of it, and just that satisfaction I get out of calling elk to me and duping them that way. So I'm totally addicted to that. Thank God that the rut only happens once a year and only goes on, you know, for a month or so. Otherwise, I'd be challenged to be married. <laughs> um, so, so that's that's got me for sure. Um, and then also, just the camaraderie and the relationships that you make out there um someone who hasn't experienced um taking an elk and and just that feeling of accomplishment i mean i won't say that there's not a feeling of of you know uh, of solemnness and sadness in taking an animal's life um but you're overwhelmed too just by the feeling of accomplishment and you know what you overcame to do it and if you're you know hunting with a buddy or like me guiding someone um just that element of, of the friendship and, and and you know and sharing the woods together there's just nothing else like it in the world and it just keeps me coming back and uh, revitalizes me every year do you think being in the business and in kind of making a living from something that you really enjoy, do you think that's diluted your passion at all for it? You know, it can. There's times when it uh, kind of ebbs and flows. 
And at times I have to step back and say, you know, think about this 30 years ago when this was your dream and then it came to fruition. Um, you need to you need to be thankful to God for it. Um, you need to enjoy it to the fullest because there's guys who would, you know, give everything to be doing what you're doing. So, you know, you need to step back and again and, and, and refresh why you enjoy this. But I agree with you, Christian. It is easy for it to lose its luster a little bit. Um, and you can kind of succumb to, you know, the pressure of it. And um, I try to approach it with a enthusiastic glass half full mentality and, you know, with an attitude that every day is opening day. Um, you know, and I'm hunting with a guy who's waited many times, years and years for this tag. And so I try to feed off of his excitement. Um, and, uh, but yeah, that is a very real phenomenon that, that you have to deal with when you do this for a living is, is that it can uh, put a little bit of, of, of damper on your enjoyment of it at times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's my fear with pursuing it as a career, or even just yes. a career in the outdoor industry. It's just like, right. yeah, I love it, but I, every time I'm at work or every time I'm away or doing something I don't want to do, I'm just like, I always have that feeling of, oh, I got something I look forward to, right. you know. And so that I mean, that's that's great to get that perspective, and I think you got a really good outlook on it. Yeah, and I would tell anyone new to it or that's looking to get into guiding. Um, I can remember, I've told several people who ask me and are wanting to get into guiding, the first piece of advice is I say, stay in school, get your degree, keep your day job, so to speak, and let this build itself before you step across the bridge or the chasm, so to speak. Because if you try to just go all in and you have no foundation underneath you, um, it could be very humbling. Um, and yeah, that's my biggest piece of advice to, to young people out there uh, who want to get in the outdoor industry. You know, make sure you build a solid foundation before you jump in with both feet. Yeah. Well, I got my degree, so I got half the foundation, and then I'm going to work on the other half by trying there to kill you, a big bull. There you go, man. <laughs> you got your priorities. <laughs> there we go. Well, Steve, I really appreciate your time and uh, just your insight and your knowledge, and I really think that um, anyone listening to this, especially people that are just now starting out elk hunting are going to get a ton of value from it. And I just can't thank you enough for that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Christian. It's been so fun to be on here and visit with you. And like I said, anytime I get the opportunity to talk elk hunting and elk calling, I'm all about it. Um, for any of your listeners, um, who have uh, television, I would encourage them. Um, we're going to be airing season two of elk camp and that's going to be starting July 1st on sportsman channel. Uh, so if they have a uh, dish network, it would be channel 395. If they've got direct TV, it'd be channel 605. Um, they, they're also able to get that digitally, I think uh, on uh, sling or Roku or maybe both. Uh, but again, on sportsman channel, it's called elk camp with Steve chapel. Um, we've got brand new episodes for this season. Uh, I really think they would, uh, they would enjoy the show. And that's uh, awesome. Yeah. Where where else, if someone wants to connect with you, um, possibly interested in going on an Arizona hunt, if God bless them so much to get a tag, or <laughs> if um, if they want to connect with you on social and just kind of keep up with your journey, where's the best place to do that? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so for social media, probably the best place to find uh, me would be at Elk Camp TV on, on Instagram. Uh, we stay pretty active on there. Uh, on Facebook, it's at Chapel Guide Service. But all of our posts from Instagram go to Facebook as well. Um, and then on the web, uh, the easiest would just be to type in elkcamptv.com. And that would take them to my Elk Camp page and then also my Chapel Guide Service pages, uh, which also would include my elk calls, videos, and all of that. Um, so again, elkcamptv.com. Awesome. Well, I just got me a, an open read call and a diaphragm call, so I may be trying to give you a call before September to get some uh, <laughs> critiques. Right on. That sounds good to me. Hey guys, thank you so much for consuming the Hunter's Advantage podcast. We really appreciate it, and we really do do the podcast for you all. And just to stay in tune with that and what you guys want to hear, 
feel free to message us on Facebook or Instagram on who you would like to see on the podcast next. Peace. Before we get started on the podcast, I just wanted to come to you guys with a special offer. I teamed up with HuntWise, the makers of the HuntWise app. They make a digital mapping software application for hunters. It allows you to tell the borders of public and private lands, who owns that land, how much land is there. Um, it's great for scouting you know, new WMAs or public parcels, as well as using the offline features to be hunting deep in the backcountry. And what's best is we have a special offer for listeners of this podcast. If you go to www.huntwise.com and use code HAP10 at checkout, you will get 10% off of the app. Once again, that's code HAP10 at www.huntwise.com. Now let's get to the episode.